Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And this episode is going to be the last episode of Season 2 of Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. But good news is we're already working on Season 3, so should see new episodes coming out in a, in a few months. For this final episode of the season, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Susanna Avery to talk about her paper, The Use of Demand Assessments, A Brief Review and Practical Guide. Susanna is a doctoral candidate at Baylor University studying educational psychology with a specialization in applied behavior analysis. She is a board-certified behavior analyst, licensed in Texas. Susanna's research interests can be categorized into two areas. The first is evidence-based practices for individuals with autism and developmental disabilities, and the second is coaching caregivers on how to implement evidence-based practices with children with autism and other developmental disabilities. A fun fact about Susanna is that she hails from the Serial City, USA, which is in Battle Creek, Michigan. I went to school not far from Battle Creek, so I was excited to connect with another Michigander, and I'm excited to share my interview with you all. So without further ado, here is my interview with Susanna Avery. Hello, Susanna, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hello, thank you. We're excited to have you here today to talk about your paper focused on demand assessments, which I was saying before we started recording is a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. Since something I've been interested in for a number of years, I actually, when preparing to do my dissertation, prepared a dissertation topic. Uh, on this very topic. Uh, unfortunately, with applied research, it didn't pan out, and I ended up going a different route. But I love this topic, and I'm incredibly excited to talk to you today about it. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about demand assessments. I think it's also a very cool topic, um, and I'm excited to kind of dive into the paper and talk more about it with you. Awesome. Before we jump into the paper, we always like to hear a little bit of background on our guests. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe what sort of brought about your interest in this topic? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm a fourth year doc student at Baylor. I'm actually just beginning to work on my dissertation right now. My primary research interests are pretty much in like two categories. First being evidence-based practices um, for children with developmental disabilities, and then coaching caregivers on how to implement evidence-based practices. most of my research focuses on challenging behavior reduction, which is kind of where like the demand assessment fits in. Um, I first got really interested in this category working on my master's thesis, actually. I conducted a study evaluating the use of demand assessments, and that really 
like introduced me to the literature. Nice. Well, so was this particular paper part of your thesis anyway? Was this something you were doing to prepare for your thesis or was it connected? So it's kind of connected. I had to conduct a literature review for my, for my thesis. Um, and so the initial part of this paper is like structured from that literature review. I updated it probably two years after the initial literature review though. Following the initial lit review, how many papers did you end up finding after that point? One paper. So initially I've identified five and then there ended up being six included in this review. Okay, nice. Yeah, so not exactly a, a super fast pace of new publications in this area. Yeah, no, not at all. Well, with that, let's jump into it. Can you tell us sort of, for those who may not be as familiar with demand assessments before we jump into the nitty gritties of your study, could you just sort of give us a general orientation to the topic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we identified two different types of demand assessments. First being indirect, which is more of like a caregiver or therapist interview. Um, it's usually like a structured questionnaire just to identify different types of demands that could be used in a direct demand assessment. Um, a direct demand assessment being more of like an observational behavior assessment. They're often conducted to identify like a hierarchy or um, like a rating of demand aversiveness or demands associated with more or less challenging behavior. Oftentimes, my like simple answer is they help um, identify an accurate function of challenging behavior if used prior to a functional analysis. Gotcha. So it's a type yeah. of assessment that is sort of sparsing out which demands may or may not have a more aversiveness or create more escape behaviors, which can be done in a few ways, indirect assessments, direct assessments. In your introduction, you you introduce the term of a low aversive demand and a high aversive demand, which seems to be an important terminology that's referenced throughout the, the papers that you ultimately reviewed in, in this paper. Could you explain what those two terms are and, and how they relate to one another? Yeah, absolutely. So a high aversive demand would be just a demand associated with higher amounts or more challenging behavior. And then a low aversive demand would be a demand associated with less challenging behavior. Got you. And why is it important to distinguish between those two terms? Like what's the utility in knowing something is a high aversive demand versus a low aversive demand? That's a good question. So knowing that a demand is more aversive, you know that it's more likely um, to produce more challenging behavior or more likely that you'll observe more amounts or higher amounts of challenging behavior which then you could use in future assessments like functional analyses. Um, it provides information that will hopefully ultimately inform treatment if you know that a demand's like more aversive or less aversive. That makes sense. I imagine that's gotta be handy when, when designing treatments, when doing functional analyses, et cetera, to know that these are the especially, uh, especially aversive demands. So you've sort of given us a pretty good intro to, to the topic overall. Clearly, demand assessments are important and produce important information. So what exactly were you doing in this study? What was the, what was the purpose of this particular paper? Yeah, so first, we wanted to just conduct a literature review, um, evaluating the different procedures used in the published articles 
And then the second part of the paper is we wanted to develop a practitioner guide to help guide decisions when conducting a demand assessment in clinical settings. And I love the, the decision-making tool that you provided. I, I love when a study sort of goes that extra mile, right? When it's like, hey, here's the information we found and, and many studies, rightfully so, sort of leave uh, many of the implications sort of open-ended, right? Your paper, not only does it provide a really nice review of the studies looked at in this paper, but you, take, you took the extra step and you said, okay, now given this information, here's a proposed decision-making tool to sort of help you figure out how to navigate this, this particular area. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, really excited to jump into that a little bit later in the paper. Before we do, uh, why don't you give us a, a general overview of, of the way that you conducted this, this literature review? Yeah, so we started off conducting the literature review, um, conducting like a database search. So that was like the initial procedures. We only identified six articles um, from the database search. And what databases did you use for the search? Yeah, so we used ERIC, Academic Search Complete, Education Research Complete, Psych Articles, Psych Info, and Psychology and Behavioral Sciences. Wow, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a lot of databases. Was there any particular reason to, to use so many? Were you just trying to be as thorough as possible? Just trying to capture as many articles as we possibly could. Nice. That makes sense. And so you, you were utilizing multiple databases. And I'm sorry, I think I interrupted you talking about the, the key terms you used. Um, we use synonyms of FA, so like behavioral assessment, function, or analysis, and then synonyms, synonyms of demand assessments. So demand evaluation, um, and then demand assess with an asterisk. And, and then synonyms of escape from demand. So like negative reinforcement, escape, negatively reinforced. And was that search within the databases, was that like an and or, or was that, were, were you like, were you looking at all papers that talked about FAs or were you looking at papers that talked about FAs and had terms related to demand assessments? So your second one. So papers that talked about FAs and had terms related to um, demand assessments and had terms related to um, escape from demands. Okay. So what was your like initial pool of, of articles that you pulled before sort of uh, applying inclusion exclusion criteria? That is also a good question. Um, before applying like in exclusion inclusion criteria, I do, honestly don't remember exactly. I want to say it wasn't very many. Okay. It was in definitely the hundreds and I'd probably say 500 or less if I remember correctly. So did you have to, you went through the 500 papers and what was your sort of initial inclusion or exclusion criteria to weed through many of those? Um, a participant diagnosed with some type of intellectual or developmental disability. Um, and then we really wanted to look for if they had challenging behavior, if an FA was conducted. A lot of that was hard to identify just based on title and abstract. Right. Um, for some of the articles, it was very easy, but we usually ended up weeding a lot out through the full text. We probably kept too many in after the title and abstract and then had a lot to go through full text for. That's a lot of work. Yeah, it uh, took a good amount of time. A lot of the search was done for my master's thesis, so it was just updating it from there. 
and you had not only yourself going through and, and reading these articles, I imagine you had uh, another observer, another coder. So what did that process look like? Yeah, absolutely. So we had another um, observer replicate the search and go through the articles simultaneously, but independent from me. Um, and then even like data extraction, we did the same. Um, 100% um, IRR simultaneously, but independent. Nice. And then after going through all of that and waiting through all those papers, you wind up with six papers that meet your inclusion exclusion criteria. Yes, six papers. Um, and I think 32 participants or 32 like individual demand assessments. So not a huge sort of group of articles there. No, not at all. Not a big group at all. Which in, in some ways is a blessing when you're the one writing up the results, right? Like, uh, yeah. you know, not as many articles to have to code all the way and describe. But in terms of those particular papers, the six papers that you're reviewing in this article, what were the major categories that you were looking at and coding for to be able to describe? Um, really a lot of the demand assessment procedures, um, like the type of data collection they were using, um, the dependent variable, what, like how many demands were included, what um, procedures were used to identify those demands. So like what indirect demand assessments were used, really like a lot of that, like, like me methodology characteristics or methodological characteristics. That makes sense. You also looked at participant characteristics. Is there any particular reason that you saw that as being a valid component of the review? We did look at participant characteristics. Um, there wasn't a ton of, a lot of the participant characteristics were similar across participants, but we were interested to see if there was a lot or a majority of the six studies published with maybe only young participants. Mm. We wanted to see if there was any type of variation, but it was pretty evenly um, distributed participant characteristics as in like age, gender across the board. What were some of the, the sort of standout points of the characteristics from the participants? So a majority of the participants were male. I want to say the percentage was 65% male, 34% female, which is pretty common, at least in my experience of reading literature, majority are male. Right. Um, the mean age was 11 years old, but the ages did range quite a bit from four to 22 years. Um, of those participants, 31% had uh, multiple diagnoses and more than half of the participants were diagnosed with autism. And then a majority of the participants engaged in multiple topographies of challenging behavior, the most common being aggression. Interesting. Yeah, the, the demographics seem relatively representative of sort of typical behavior analytic research, I guess, in particular research related to functional analyses and, and, and function-based treatment. So again, one of the pieces was looking at characteristics a little bit, but primarily the, the focus of the paper and a bulk of the paper is looking at the specific characteristics of the particular demand assessments. And you kind of break it into two sections, the indirect demand assessments and the direct demand assessments. Could you sort of refresh us again on what you mean by indirect demand assessments and then talk about some of the characteristics of those assessments you saw in the studies? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the indirect demand assessments were those structured interviews um, conducted with either therapists or caregivers. They were usually in the form of like a questionnaire. Um, And then the direct demand assessment is your actual observational behavior assessment where you're manipulating variables and observing the effects on behavior. Gotcha. And what were some of the the primary strategies or, or components of the indirect demand assessments used in the studies you reviewed? Um, the primary components would be, I guess, like a structured questionnaire, which we identified two different types. One of them was the negative reinforcement rating scale or the NRRS. Um, and then the other one was the demand assessment for individuals with severe disabilities. And did every study utilize a form of indirect assessment? No, the majority of studies did. One study looked at um, IEP goals for the participants, and that's where they kind of uh, identified which demands they were going to include in the direct demand assessment. Oh, interesting. So instead of sort of identifying potential demands through interviews, they had just kind of pulled the demands based on the IEP? Yeah. Huh. That's, yeah, I'll be curious to, to learn a little bit more about how that study turned out. But going back to the two particular types of indirect assessments you looked at. So there was the, the negative reinforcement rating scale. Could you tell us what that assessment process looked like? Yeah, so the negative reinforcement rating scale is a um, Likert type scale. It helps identify different categories of demands. So it doesn't identify like specific tasks, but caregivers can nominate categories like household chores or academic tasks as being more aversive or less aversive. Mm. So you have to kind of ask follow-up questions to identify like maybe a specific type of household chore or a specific type of academic task. But the scale is very helpful in identifying areas where you might um, see more challenging behavior. Gotcha. And so given the need for caregiver input in in a tool like this, did you get a sense as to whether this is sort of meant primarily for parents or teachers or can it go across any and all settings? Is there any information about its particular targeted audience? I, from what I remember, it seems that most of the studies used it with caregivers. Um, I don't see why you couldn't use it with other therapists or with teachers, just as someone who knows the individual well enough to know different, like which categories may or may be less aversive. To help us get a feel for the negative reinforcement rating scale and sort of get a feel for what it looks like, could you give us an example question of of what may be asked to the caregivers? Absolutely. So caregivers are um, given a a category or like an activity. So if I were to ask a caregiver, um, could you rate on a scale of one to four if doing... um, household chores are one being uh, less aversive, like it doesn't bother your child at all to do household chores or four, like it really bothers your child to do household chores. So that's the first type of question they'd be asked. And then they'd be asked to provide specific examples. So if a caregiver said four, like household chores are always um, gonna bother my child. They're always associated with lots of problem behavior or challenging behavior. I would ask for a follow-up example. Like, could you give me an example of a chore that's like really bothers your child? 
And so the chore could be like vacuuming. So it starts sort of at a a large funnel and works its way down, right? Are chores a thing or is that a problem? And then it tries to go through and identify specific chores that may be problematic. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. And in terms of the utility of this particular rating scale, what, what did you see in terms of its, its accuracy, reliability, as described in the studies you looked at? Um, in terms of the like, utility, it seemed to be pretty accurate. The total number of demands identified were pretty inconsistent across caregivers, but the actual like aversive properties of the demand seemed to be pretty accurate. Hmm. But that in and of itself hasn't actually been evaluated in regard to the scale. So it sounds like the jury is still out probably on the scale. Yeah. What were some of the major limitations of this particular scale? Um, So like I had previously mentioned, just the inconsistent number of demands identified across caregivers. So like if you were to use the scale with one caregiver, you might identify a list of like 10 demands as being very aversive. But if you were to give it to a different caregiver who maybe provided less examples, you wouldn't find as many demands. Gotcha. Um, There'd be consistency. There'd be consistency in the demands that they identified, but one caregiver is just going to list more than the others. Potentially. Yeah. So both caregivers may rank academic tasks as being very problematic um, or high aversive, but one might provide different examples of academic tasks than the other caregiver. So one caregiver could say like sorting colors is very problematic. Whereas the other caregiver could say, well, tracing letters is very problematic. So it's like the little like um, nuances or like the specific demands in and of itself that could be different. Okay. Any other limitations for this particular assessment? That was the primary limitation that we identified from this assessment. And then what of the demand assessment for individuals with severe disabilities or dazed? Is that how you say that? I call it the dazed. Yeah, dazed. The, the dazed. What, what did that assessment look like? What were some of the, the helpful components of it? What were some of the limitations? So for the dazed, some of the limitations um, was just that the convergent validity between what the caregivers report as being high aversive or low aversive demands um, hasn't actually been evaluated yet because the dazed is relatively new. That paper was published in 2020. Gotcha. And so there's just been less literature um, evaluating the use of it. And what did the actual assessment look like? What, like, how did, how was it administered? So the actual assessment's a little bit more specific. It's not um, a scale. So caregivers are asked questions like, um, you know, some children might have difficulty completing academic tasks. And then they're given examples of what academic tasks are. And then they're asked to list, um, different types of academic tasks that might be more problematic for their child. So they're specifically asked to list actual like tasks right away versus nominating categories of tasks. Gotcha. So let's say that academic tasks weren't an issue with with one particular client or participant. As I said, you know, here's an academic test list, specific academic tests that may be problematic. Could the could the parents or the caregivers potentially say, 
there aren't any, would that be an acceptable answer? Yeah. I mean, if there aren't any, the caregivers could say that. And then the um, therapist or whoever's inter- like, uh, implementing the days could move on to like the next question, which could be asking to identify specific like household chores that are problematic. So they work through the different tasks, but they're, the caregivers are asked to identify um, examples right away. I see. For each category. That makes sense. So it looks like across both the NRRS and the DAZED, we, we may have potentially some helpful information being brought about by these two assessments, but the reliability and the accuracy isn't necessarily at a point where we can be conclusive about it. Yeah, that's an absolutely fair statement. Future research definitely should evaluate um, the reliability and validity of both the NRRS and the DAZED. And given that the accuracy and reliability are potentially in question, it still seems very important to do some of the direct demand assessments that you ultimately reviewed. And so segueing into that category, you broke down direct demand assessments into three categories. Could you introduce those to those and tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, absolutely. So based on our literature review, we identified three different types of direct demand assessments. And those types are the three different categories. The first type we identified was a rate-based demand assessment. We also identified a latency-based demand assessment. And then we identified a PSDA or a paired stimulus demand assessment. And were these categories pulled directly from the reviewed papers? Like, were these the terms that were included in the papers you reviewed? Or were these terms that you came up with to sort of categorize and organize the papers you were looking at? These were terms pulled directly from the papers. Could you tell us a little bit about the the rate-based demand assessment, what that looked like? So the rate-based demand assessment is pretty similar to a traditional functional analysis um, based on the IWATA 1982 and 1994 procedures. Um, Researchers collect data on challenging behavior responses per minute across the different demand categories and um, evaluate that across sessions. So evaluate the amount of challenging behavior. So what would be, how long would the trials occur for like in a like in a let's say if we were doing original FA procedures I believe the conditions were 15 minutes in that paper is it are you presenting demands for 15 minutes straight or is it a shorter trial or session um so for that one I believe the trials varied between like five and ten minutes um but the whole overall duration of the demand assessment for rate-based was 120 minutes Okay, for both studies that use the rate-based. And would the procedures follow a similar pattern of like multi-element? So you're like doing multiple exposures of each condition across the, the assessment process? Yeah. So um, within each individual session, you're exposing the participant to multiple demands of the same category. And then um, contingent upon challenging behavior, the participant would receive a break from demand completion 
and it'd be a multi-element design where you're evaluating different demand categories. Gotcha. What were some of the pros and cons to this particular design? For the rate base, some of the limitations or I guess the cons would be that researchers or practitioners may not always identify a hierarchy of demand aversiveness due to either similar rates of challenging behavior across um, all demands. So due to either high amounts of challenging behavior across all demands or low amounts of challenging behavior across all demands. What was its main utility? Like, what was the main benefit of this particular design? The main benefit that we noted was that the procedures really were very similar to a traditional functional analysis, which a lot of um, individuals, practitioners already are familiar with. So it could increase the probability that the procedures are implemented with high fidelity. Gotcha. Is the concept with doing like a rate-based demand assessment, essentially doing a little mini FA of just the demand types, potentially prior to doing like the full FA and, and, and fully evaluating the demand? Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of would look like a mini FA of maybe just like the escape condition just with different types of demands in each condition. Right. And again, that's going to help you identify the specific demands that may actually be the related to the particular challenging behavior. Not unlike many clinicians do preference assessments for tangible items prior to running a tangible condition, you might need to double check the particular demands you're placing. Absolutely, yeah prior to the escape condition, you would probably want to double check to see if the demands you're using are, or have an evocative function prior to conducting that escape condition. And what of the latency-based demand assessment? What did that look like? So the latency-based demand assessment was a little different in that their researchers or practitioners um, present a different demand per session but contingent upon the first response of challenging behavior, the session ended. So researchers would present a demand um, using like at least the most prompting procedure. So asking the participant to maybe like complete a puzzle. And as soon as that participant engaged in challenging behavior, the session was over. Gotcha. So in that way, was it similar to a latency-based functional analysis then in terms of setup and execution? Yes. Yep. Okay. So the dependent variable would be the latency to the first instance of challenging behavior and with a lower latency suggesting like more, um, the demand being more aversive or associated with more challenging behavior. Gotcha. And the second that the behavior occurred, that condition ends. It's not as if you, you note the latency and then represent it. So the, I imagine it would in some ways be potentially more efficient than the rate-based yeah, so the second the challenging behavior occurred, the session ended. So researchers would just say, you know, um, okay, like we don't have to do that anymore. The average duration for the latency-based demand assessment was still around 218 minutes for one study and then like 140 minutes for another study, which was still a little bit longer than a rate-based. With a rate-based, one of the, yeah, two of the sessions were 120 minutes and one of the session was 60 minutes. 
considering that you end the condition immediately when problem behavior occurs, you would think that it would be more efficient. Do you have any sense as to why the latency-based assessments would be requiring more time than the rate-based? Um, so researchers did take an average latency to challenging behavior, meaning that each demand was presented multiple times. And then um, the average latency was calculated just to kind of get a uh, more accurate latency. Right. And so that would definitely take a little bit longer. Um, and then another reason, I guess, would just be if demands in general were less aversive. So if they're just in general were longer latencies to challenging behavior, then that would increase the overall amount of time that the demand assessment took. That, that makes sense because you're going to have some participant specific variables that are going to affect the length, right? Like you were saying, they, it may take them quite a while to, to work themselves up into the, the problem behaviors related to the escape. And so of course that's going to increase the length of the assessment time. And I don't, I don't know this, but I suppose the studies could also have just simply implemented more conditions for whatever reason in the rate base, which of course would also increase the, the length. The third assessment type you looked at was the paired stimulus demand assessment. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so the paired stimulus demand assessment is very similar to a paired stimulus preference assessment where participants are presented with two different demands and asked to pick one. Um, and then the demand that they pick, researchers hypothesize that demand is less aversive because they chose that demand. Gotcha. And the demand the um, participant chose away from, researchers hypothesize that was more aversive. Could you give us an example or, or sort of explain what the particular choice process looked like? Like how did the how did the researchers introduce the options? How did, what did the selection actually look like? So that's a great question. So participants were um, presented stimuli or material for each different demand. So if um, they were asked to complete like an academic task being a puzzle, they're presented with maybe a puzzle. And if the other task was like wiping off the counters, they might be presented with like a squirt bottle and a washcloth. And they were asked to pick one. Gotcha. Um, and then the researchers in that study actually used a least most prompting procedure um, contingent upon a response. So participants had to pick one and they actually prompted the participant to uh, complete like one trial of that demand. So maybe putting like one puzzle piece in the puzzle or like wiping off the counter. Okay. And as you said, when introducing this particular assessment, you said, it was reason that the student is ultimately or the participant is ultimately going to allocate their responding to the task that's going to be least aversive, right? If you've got the choice between two demands, you're going to choose the one that's less aversive. Yeah, absolutely. That's the hypothesis. And what did you see in terms of utility and potential limitations with this particular assessment? Yeah, so one of the initial like limitations would be that the participants do need to be able to scan and select between two different stimuli. Um, so that makes this demand assessment not necessarily appropriate for all participants right. because of that prerequisite skill. Um, but a huge strength is that the participants don't have to engage in challenging behavior in order to identify a hierarchy of demands that are associated with varying amounts of challenging behavior. And this um, demand assessment method 
had the um, shortest overall duration. I think the average duration for this type of demand assessment was um, like 35 minutes. Wow, that's so interesting. Pretty quick. Yeah, and I, do you know how many different conditions they were able to assess within that period of time? So it seemed to vary across participants for the um, paired stimulus. So participants, um, the number of demands evaluated per participant ranged from five to eight. And then the number of times each demand was evaluated ranged from two to three. And then overall, just across the different types of demand assessments, the number of demands evaluated varied across the different types. That makes sense. And it doesn't seem like anyone has really begun looking at studies on the specific efficiency, right? Because there's no real consistency across the particular conditions, how many and everything like that, which I think is an interesting research question potentially if if people are interested in demand assessments and specifically related to their efficiency it might be interesting to look at given the same amount of conditions which one is actually more efficient yeah absolutely that's um one area of future research that would be really neat to study um the average number of demands evaluated across just all different types of demand assessments were eight Okay. ranging from five to 12. So it'd be really interesting to study how many so you, demands. So you can really look at a number of potential demands and sort of weed through and figure out which ones are, are truly going to be highly aversive or not. Taking all of the data and information from all the studies you reviewed across these three categories, were there any major take-home points about the setup and execution of these assessments? So we definitely still need more research evaluating the different types of demand assessment methods, in particular to like the direct demand assessments. Specifically for the paired stimulus demand assessment, only one study so far has evaluated um, the use of the paired stimulus demand assessment. And I'd be really curious to see future research evaluating that type of demand assessment, given that there was a clear hierarchy of demand aversiveness identified with that one um, type and that paired stimulus demand assessment did have the shortest uh, overall duration. Gotcha. So paired stimulus demand assessment in many ways, maybe one of the more promising methodologies you looked at. Is there any particular reason that a demand hierarchy would be useful? Like I'm trying to think, why would I care about knowing the sort of individual ranking of the different demands? So from more of like a research standpoint, it could be interesting to evaluate whether um, low aversive demands or demands that are hypothesized to be less aversive are actually associated with less challenging behavior. Um, And it could also be interesting to evaluate or to kind of utilize the knowledge of knowing that some demands are associated with less challenging behavior and some demands are associated with more challenging behavior in the treatment. Um, If you're working maybe with like behavior momentum, presenting those less aversive demands initially and then presenting um, higher aversive demands could be beneficial to uh, the productivity of the client. I love that. I love looking at the idiosyncratic variables related to any particular function, right? When we do an FA and we identify that it's escape from demands, that does not mean that any and all demands 
are going to evoke problem behavior, or for that matter, if we identify tension, not every form of attention is equal. And so looking at identifying what are the particular demands that are powerful uh, as they relate to problem behavior and really in rank order, what are the different aversive levels that are going to potentially create differential effects on the behavior? One of the applications that I'm sort of interested in related to demands and, and understanding the rank order of aversiveness is choice procedures and, and providing clients different or setting contingencies related to different demands or activities and seeing if we could potentially arrange choices to favor particular adaptive behaviors in a way um, to help the client learn and, and to, to, to engage in more varied responses. And certainly having the rank order of demands and, and an arrangement like that would be very helpful. Absolutely. In your paper, you provide an amazing figure, figure one, that goes through this, this really helpful decision-making tree or, or guide for decision-making. Uh, I've been really excited to dive into this. And for those who are listening, I, I strongly recommend downloading the paper and looking at this, this decision guide. But for those listening with the, the figure not available, can you begin to sort of walk through the different pieces and how they may interact? Yeah, so absolutely. So we did create a decision-making guide in order to outline different considerations that practitioners may make when determining which just type of demand assessment best meets the needs of their clients. I suppose before we, we dive into the decision-making guide, you state in your paper, there are four assumptions that have to be made before utilizing this particular guide. Could you specify what those are? Absolutely. So we did outline four assumptions. The first being that, of course, practitioners should obtain consent from caregivers um, prior to conducting any assessments with their clients. That is just, uh, you know, ethical consideration following right. our um, ethics code. And then the second assumptions, practitioners should have anecdotal data suggesting the need for an FA. Of course, we aren't wanting to conduct a functional analysis if there's not a need to conduct a functional analysis. Gotcha. Um, third, practitioners should have evidence suggesting an escape function for challenging behavior. And then fourth, um, of course, an adequately trained behavior analyst should be present during the functional analysis. Gotcha. So before going through the trouble of doing a, what could be at least somewhat time consuming task of identifying particular demands, you should Obviously, you want to be doing a functional analysis, but then in particular, suspect the escape function yes, in addition yep. to the ethical considerations you put in there. So sort of given those caveats, what's the first step of this decision-making guide? So given those caveats, um, the first step of the decision-making guide is to um, conduct a indirect demand assessment. So that could be conducting either the NRS or the DAYS with participant caregivers. Which again, is going to help you sort of narrow in your list of potential conditions to assess. So you, you do yeah. the indirect assessment, you've got your, your list of probable suspects, and then what's the next step? 
And the next step would be to conduct that direct demand assessment. So conducting whether or conducting either the latency-based demand assessment, the rate-based demand assessment, or that paired stimulus demand assessment. And then we've included some considerations to help practitioners decide which type of direct demand assessment best meets the needs of their client. Oh, I love it. What, what are some of the, the nuances there in choosing one versus the other? Yeah. So initially we said, can clients scan and select between stimuli or scan and select between two stimuli, which is important because if clients aren't able to scan and select between two stimuli, that automatically rules the paired stimulus demand assessment out. Right. Um, versus if they can scan and select between two stimuli, then practitioners are going to have to decide between the three different types of direct demand assessments. Gotcha. Then what, what's the next level there? So if they can, I guess let's go, if they cannot select between the two stimuli, what's that? What's the decision between the rate-based and the latency-based? So the decision would be, does the client engage in high amounts of challenging behavior? Um, okay. And then from there, practitioners will decide the rate-based or the latency-based. So we said that if the client does engage in high amounts of challenging behavior, we suggest that practitioners use the latency-based demand assessment. Um, if they don't engage in high amounts of challenging behavior, we suggested the rate-based demand assessment. And why is the latency-based helpful for high rates of challenging behavior? The latency-based is helpful because the, that session ends after the first instance of challenging behavior. Um, so if participants do engage in high rates of challenging behavior, in order to create a hierarchy of demand aversiveness, they only have to engage in that topography one time um, to get that hierarchy versus the rate-based, they'd be engaging in the topography of challenging behavior multiple times throughout that session. Okay. Would there be utility in, in selecting from rate-based and latency-based for similar reasons to selecting between like a traditional FA and a latency-based FA in that like for example, a latency-based FA may be more appropriate for a client who's engaging in elopement because of the complications of elopement in a, in a rate-based or interval-based FA system. Latency may be more useful. Would, would some of those similar considerations be applicable here? Yeah, absolutely. Those considerations would be very applicable here. And so that's sort of one side of the can the client scan and select from two different stimuli. If you said yes there, it pushes you in to, as you said, deciding between the paired stimulus and the other two. So what's the major consideration there? So the major consideration there is still the same. So it's, um, does the client engage in high amounts of challenging behavior? Um, but here we're deciding between the three different types of demand assessments. So if you're working with a client who can scan and select between two stimuli and does engage in high amounts of challenging behavior, we suggest conducting the paired stimulus demand assessment for similar reasons um, with the PSDA or the paired stimulus demand assessment, the participant or the client doesn't actually have to engage in a topography of challenging behavior in order to identify demand aversiveness, which is great for clients who do engage in high amounts or severe challenging behavior. Yeah, it's, it's sort of designed in a way where you see no problem behavior at all, or at least lower levels. So that's, that'd be very helpful. And that makes a lot of sense. Once you sort out which of the specific direct 
demand assessments you're going to conduct, it brings you into a, another question. What is that? So the next question um, is identifying demands. Once you've identified demands associated with challenging behavior, so you've identified um, demands with the shortest latency to challenging behavior um, or the highest challenging behavior responses per minute or just the least selected demands, you're going to um, then want to conduct a functional analysis with those demands used during the escape condition. Gotcha. And if you see challenging behavior related to the demand assessment, I'm sure that means one thing. And then if you don't see problem behavior during that demand assessment of the FA, um, what would you do with that information? So let's start off on the, the branch that says you do the FA and you don't see problem behavior during the demand condition. So if you do the FA and you don't observe um, challenging behavior in the demand condition, our little branch says to go back to the top. So you're going to go back to number one. You're going to redo that indirect demand assessment to identify different demand categories. Would it be possible... Let me re-ask that question. When you say were adequate levels of challenging behavior observed, do you mean in the FA completely, like any condition within the FA, or do you mean within the demand condition? Because I would imagine that it's possible that you do an FA, you don't see any during the demand condition, even though you suspected that it was demanding, but let's say that it pops during the attention condition would you say that that satisfactorily demonstrates that the function is in fact attention, therefore we don't need to go back and redo this demand assessment? So I felt like there was two questions there. Um, the initial question, so like were adequate levels of challenging behavior observed, that first consideration is for the demand assessment. Gotcha. So just identifying whether actual like, um, challenging behavior levels were observed during the demand assessment. And then um, the second caveat is like, were, uh, or do FA results support an escape function? So are there more challenging behavior or higher amounts of challenging behavior in that high aversive um, escape condition of the FA? As the, as the decision guide is, is designed, it would seemingly, at least as I'm reading it, put you on a loop. If, you, if you're not getting discrimination during the demand condition, you just keep redoing it. But theoretically, you could be suspecting an escape function for a client and do a demand assessment. And that assessment not produce any behavior during the demand condition of the FA which to me would signal, yeah, it's, I guess it's just not demand. The function is in demand and, and maybe something else. Is there, is, does your decision-making guide account for, for those particular cases? Um, not necessarily. So if you did an FA and you weren't observing um, high levels of challenging behavior in that high aversive escape condition, our guide tells you to go back to number one, redo that indirect demand assessment to identify different demands. But that's really why it's important to um, really suspect that escape function. Because, I mean, you can go back and identify different demands, but if there really isn't that underlying escape function, 
um, it kind of negates the purpose of going back to redo that indirect demand assessment. So once you complete the section of this decision guide where you're selecting the specific direct demand assessment that you're going to conduct, what do you do next? So once you've identified the specific direct demand assessment, you want to make sure, um, once you've identified the demand assessment and then conducted the demand assessment, you wanna make sure that you have identified demands that are associated with more challenging behavior. So you wanna kind of evaluate your demand assessment results, see if you have demands that either have a shorter latency to challenging behavior, um, that have higher challenging behavior responses per minute, or are um, the least selected demands. Gotcha. And then your, your component of the decision-making guide says, were adequate levels of challenging behavior observed? If no, you go back to the top of this process and you start it over. If yes, you go into a next phase. What if through interviews and maybe even through observations, your suspicion that demand is likely a function was actually misinformed or you misunderstood something, right? So perhaps the, the caregivers of your client believe that it's demand and they tell you every demand that, you know, typically is going to evoke problem behavior. And when you test those demands, they don't actually produce anything. Could that signal that maybe your hypothesis that demand is the function is off or what else could that potentially mean? So if initially you conducted demand assessment and you weren't identifying demands associated with lots of challenging behavior, we recommend just going back and redoing that indirect demand assessment to identify different demands. Gotcha. Um, we would hypothesize that the first demands weren't either evocative enough. Um, and so we recommend just starting from the top and working your way back down gotcha. of the guide. Yeah, because you could, you potentially just selected conditions that aren't actually representative of the actual behavior environment relation. But I also have to imagine that it's possible, it's within the realm of possibility, that you start this assessment thinking that it's demands and potentially never see problem behaviors during the demand condition because perhaps they're not sensitive to demands as, as you thought or potentially caregivers thought. So after you repeat it one time through, like you do it once, there's nothing. So you go back and you reselect conditions. If you've done it a second time, would you go, yeah, perhaps demand isn't the function here and then just move on to an FA and, and test the other conditions or, or what would you do with that sort of kink in the road? Yeah, so we actually didn't um, discuss that within the use of the guide, but if you identified different categories of demands twice and you're still not seeing a hierarchy of demands, it might then be useful to go on and conduct that FA to identify whether you are observing an escape function or not. Um, obviously you don't want to prolong the use of an FA when the participant like needs to um, move on to like a function-based intervention. Gotcha. And the next step of your decision-making guide is to conduct an FA. So ideally having gone through the process you've just done, you have different, you, you, you have information about the aversiveness of potential demands. 
So what do you do within that FA? Do you do anything special or you just run a, a condition with the, the highest aversive demand or, or what does that look like? So you'll run the FA just with the high aversive demand in the escape condition. So similar to using a preference assessment to inform the tangible items in the tangible condition, you would just use that demand assessment to inform the types of demands you're placing in the escape condition. Gotcha. And then the last step of your decision-making guide talks about its implication on intervention. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yep. So step number five um, would be to implement an intervention or to modify an existing intervention to decrease that challenging behavior associated with those high aversive demands. So it's just um, moving on to that function-based intervention to reduce the challenging behavior. Gotcha. And so one part is are high amounts of challenging behavior observed? If yes, go back and redo your intervention. If no, you, you kind of move on to thinning the schedule of reinforcement and eventually, you know, terminating intervention, which is the goal with any particular case. So I, I really think this, this, this guide is extremely helpful again for the listeners out there who are interested in this type of work. It's, it's a really nice, clear tool that you can use. It's really accessible. So I recommend checking out the paper. I wish that I could spend, or I feel like I could spend all day talking about demand assessments. Again, I, I love this topic. Unfortunately, I want to, you know, be respectful of everyone's time. So to sort of wrap things up for people who are interested in this line of research or potentially understanding it more for practice, do you have references or other resources that you might suggest that they check out? I mean, definitely check out the papers that have evaluated the use of demand assessment. So the six articles um, identified in the review, those are definitely good places to start. Other than that, I do recommend listening to different podcast episodes, possibly on like functional analyses or different like idiosyncratic variables um, used to like inform the test conditions of functional analyses. Unfortunately, because there are only six studies evaluating the use of demand assessments, there's not a ton of information out there that are like very uh, specific to demand assessments right now. But in a broader sense, a lot of the um, functional analysis resources talking about the different idiosyncratic variables to inform test conditions are very useful. Is there anything else, anything else that people should check out? I don't have any like specific recommendations that other people should check out. Um, I just recommend like trying to listen to podcasts and definitely reading those articles. Um, it does seem because two of the articles out of the six were published in 2020. So it does seem like there is more of an uh, emerging line of research in this area. So I'm hopeful to see hopefully more studies evaluating the use of demand assessments and to hopefully have like better resources available in the future as well. Yeah, me too. I, I, I hope this area of research grows. Is this something you're considering for your dissertation at all? So I, for my dissertation, I really wanted to um, just empirically evaluate um, the use of this guide. That is an area of future research that I would love to do. I don't believe I'm gonna do that for my dissertation, um, but hopefully in the future, I would love to or have um, an empirical evaluation on the use of this guide. Also, I'd love to evaluate practitioner perceptions on the use of this guide. That's a study that I would love to conduct um, in the future as well, because obviously this is a tool made for practitioners. Um, it hasn't been empirically evaluated by them, and it also hasn't uh, 
like obviously there's no study um, evaluating their evaluating practitioner perceptions and so I would love to uh, conduct a survey just kind of evaluating the perceptions on the use of the guide. Nice. Well, cool. I'll look forward to seeing more research from you in this area. Thank you for coming on the show today and, and sharing this, this research that you did and the tool that you created. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Cody. I had lots of fun talking about this paper and talking about this tool. Before you take off, remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use and to find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bat papers that we should review. The links to our social media are available in our show notes. Remember that today's episode was the last episode of Season 2 Behavior Analysis and Practice of the Podcast. So by following us on social media, you'll see the updates on Season 3 and when it will be available. Before we take off, I'd like to thank a few people for helping create the podcast. Thanks to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin the production assistant for this episode, Jacqueline Wilson. And as always, thank you to Jim Carr and his band New Latitude for letting us sample their song Cruising Altitude throughout this podcast.